This week, the New York Public Library podcast welcomes Tom Parada, whose novels Little Children, Election, and The Leftovers have been adapted into highly lauded films and television series. He joins us today to discuss his latest work, Nine Inches. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org and subscribe on iTunes to never miss an episode. Welcome to Books at Noon. I'm glad to see you all out here on this beautiful day. I'm glad we didn't do this yesterday. Um, I want to mention a number of things. The reason we're doing this outside um, was to, well, it's the 10th anniversary of Library Way across the street. And um, I want to thank Grand Central Partnership and also... I have to look at these notes because I'm, it's the Murray Hill Neighborhood Association. It was also involved in this. And um, Bryant Park was kind enough to give us this space today. And um, so Library Way was a sort of brainchild of the library and the Grand Central Partnership. And they decided to take this block, which you see across the street, and choose with the experts from the library and actually the New Yorker chose writers or chose quotes of sort of luminaries about literature and um, made these lovely plaques which are now installed in the cement and you can read the various quotes and gaze at them and think about them and choose your favorite. Anyway, um, we have sort of maps um, and uh, information about, well, not really a map, but information about uh, Library Way, um, and you'll see leaflets around you. And also, we're lucky enough to have the two sculptors here today, and um, it's Greg Lefebvre and Jennifer Andrews here to discuss, there they are in the front, uh, how they created uh, these plaques, and so please feel free to talk to them. Um, all right. Now, on to the show. Today, we have Tom Parada. Uh, he's, the no- he's a novelist, a short story writer, and also a screenwriter. He's written six novels, including Election and Little Children, and most recently, well, of the novels, was The Leftovers, which is, he has adapted along with others and is a producer on, and it's a now a series on HBO, so maybe... Some of you are watching that. And um, he's also written two books of short stories, one which has come out in the last year called um, Nine Inches, and I will be discussing that very briefly. And then, uh, so I'm going to sit down and talk with him, and then I'm going to open it up for a few questions at the end, and then Tom will be signing uh, in the library at the library shop, and um, it will be 10% off the hardcover books today. So welcome. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. That was a long introduction. <laughs> All right, it's, it's a little chilly out here. Anyway, um, I wanted to start with, uh, I was reading a review in The New Yorker of um, talking about uh, the leftovers. And um, it was by a guy named Ian Crouch, and he said about your work, the recurring catastrophe in Parada's work is that of children confronting adulthood or adults faced with the fact that they can no longer be children. And I wanted, I thought that that 
I mean, for me, it rung true. And I wondered how you, f I mean, if that rings true to you or what you think about that sort of analysis of your work. Well, <clears throat> you know, A.O. Scott just wrote this piece uh, in the Times Magazine that was about this very subject. That, oh, yeah, absolutely. And it seems yeah. to be the drama of American culture for, for this generation. Um, to me, it goes back to growing up in the 70s, uh, and it was really the time when adult authority seemed uh, to have decayed to the point where it really didn't exist, and we sort of felt that we were on our own in, in some way. So um, it was, whoa. It was when the latchkey kid became sort of well-known. I mean, I think they, these kids had just wandered. I mean, I was one of those kids who would wander home. No one was home. My mother was working, going to graduate school. It was, it was the unsupervised child. Yeah, and, and those kids have become these kind of crazed parents. <laughs> um, yeah. And there's just something going on. Like, those roles are up for grabs over the past few generations. And a lot of my work really is kind of investigating both sides of that um, relationship and how um, parents still think they're kids. Kids sometimes feel like... They have to parent their parents. Yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, I, I, in Nine Inches, I wrote a lot about kids trying to get into college right now. And they're just little professionals and they're little careerists. And, I actually and really loved that story because, I mean, I want to talk about it briefly, but I, I've, I mean, tell me what the little professional, but I mean, this guy his whole life is centered around getting into college and applying to these schools and the backup schools, and then it doesn't work out. Yeah, <laughs> and, and the, this is sort of the suburban nightmare, you know, the suburban <laughs> high achiever nightmare um, where the kid just is stellar across the board and, and can't get in. I've heard this story a couple oh, times too, now, yeah. you know, and then you have to go figure out how to retool yourself and have a gap year that buffs your back up so you're... Uh, but he no decides longer. not on the perfect gap year. I mean, he... he no, he becomes a, a drug dealer. Dr yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, I, I, but also, you know, he's okay. I mean, there's a way in which it's not the ending that you would have hoped for in any way. It's, but, I mean, and he's carted off to jail in the end. But, yes. I, I, but, it's, but there is some way in which he's okay with it. I mean, having gone from somebody who was you know, so sort of wrapped up in uh, doing everything right and suddenly the alternatives to do everything wrong. <laughs> it, it is, and, and I think he rediscovers some uh, traditional American values of entrepreneurship <laughs> and, uh, and the improvisation. Power of money. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And, and getting off that, that path, which I think can be somewhat oppressive for kids, obviously. Oh, absolutely. And what is it about suburbia? I mean, you grew up in New Jersey. I mean, is it the... I always think of sort of David Lynch in suburbia, too, this sort of underbelly that everything's pristine on the surface, and then underneath there's just horror going on or sadness. Well, it's or, just human life going right. on. Um, you know, in the 70s, we used to come into the city from New Jersey, and, and it was as if, like, the veil had been torn away. And, in fact, it, it's really disorienting for me to be speaking in public in New York City with a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like I should be ranting crazily at you. Um, that's really what needs to be done. Um, I actually was going to bring up Nine Inches, and I, I, I you know, I, I, 
wrote that, you know, whether the story is funny or disturbing or the sense of longing fills every character, um, whether it be the football player, the teacher, the kid who doesn't get into college, why, why is that longing so compelling to you? I mean, is it, I mean, is it to every sort of writer when they, I mean, Anna Karenina is longing too, but I, it just feels like they all, there's something unmet. Um, well, I mean, I guess we can argue ab- about this. I mean, I felt it um, recently in the reaction to the show The Leftovers. You know, there were just so many people just saying, boy, this, this show is so dark. People are so unhappy. And, and uh, you know, I don't deny that people can be happy and that oh, there's, sure, there's sure. joy in life. But I think in stories that we tell, characters have to want something. They have to feel that there's... Um, something that they're fighting against or something that they're trying to attain. And, and those are the characters who are, are interesting to me. And, and it's true. I think if you look at, I remember teaching literature in college and having kids say, like, why are these stories all so, so sad? And, and it's either because human life is sad or because there's really nothing much to say about happy people, except they're going to get theirs. Well, I think... <laughs> I, I also well there there is something about your work they're longing but they they're they're not resolved I mean maybe the the comment because it, it, there, there's not a happy ending I mean this need and I think it's very American for this kind of resolution in the end that feels um, that everything's sewn up perfectly and and that is not something that guides your you know interest at all I mean I I don't think the sort of classic, you know, ending where, oh, the kid, he gets out of prison and isn't it amazing? Or in prison, he, you know, he applies to the Bard Prison Initiative and, you know, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's not that sense. It's a sense that it's okay for it just to resolve itself and not to be necessarily good or bad. It just is. I mean, is that... Yeah, you know, I think... Probably I'm working off a fairly classic idea of the, of the story, that, that Joycean moment mm-hmm. of clarity. And so a lot of times people have clarity not in moments of joy, which are fleeting, but in moments when illusions have been stripped away and, and they're really, you know, at, at a kind of a, a, a low point. And, you know, my sense always is that that moment of clarity um, is actually a potential that's the moment when you understand the truth about yourself and then then you actually could be happy right right, right you can't right. be happy living with some mistaken idea of oneself you know no absolutely i wanted to ask you and maybe i read something that is not true and you can shake your head and but i heard or read that you felt that holden caulfield was the most overrated of characters and I would have thought that he would be somebody you would respond to so I was surprised and I wanted to know what it was about him um, you know I, I think I read it too late Right. I, I missed it in, in high school I was too much of a little snob to read Catcher in the Rye because <laughs> all these adults said you should and I didn't read it till I was out of college and, and uh I don't know. You know, I think I read it through a kind of a class lens. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it seemed to me that 
you know, his revel his horrible revelation that people were phony and and he just he seemed to me to not have lived in the real world that that I the world that I thought was the real world. Um, but probably also there's that element of anxiety of influence when you're a young right. writer right. and you want to write in that vein. And, and instead of saying, oh, you know, Salinger did it better than I ever could, you say, oh, he didn't do it right. Right, right. Um, and so now I can, I can do it. So I think there was probably some just strategic distancing there. Right. Um, but my first book, Bad Haircut, is about... A, you know, a teenager trying to make sense of his world, and it's told in first person. And I tried to make him much more of an ordinary kid. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, where Holden felt like um, a very delicate sensibility. And he was looking at life and saying, that's too crude. Um, that doesn't um, meet my standards for intelligence and, and beauty. And I, was, I have always been drawn to more ordinary characters and to attempt to... Um, tell what, what seems to me a more typical story rather than the story of, of an ex, a kind of extreme case which holds so it. So there's is. a level of pretentiousness about him. So I thought. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. you also said, which I thought was funny, I'd like to find out what he, he you know, is doing, when he, what, 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 what he did when he grew up. I thought you could, you know, yeah. <laughs> right at the end of that one. Well, apparently I was a very disillusioned kid. Like, <laughs> I, I, I thought I knew, uh, knew better than Holden. Um, but I think I grew up in a world where you weren't allowed to be pretentious. You know, you right. get mocked. And, and uh, so I think I was probably jealous of him feeling that he could be. Uh, but I also, you know, did, did feel like, well, I don't know. <laughs> Who did you love reading? When you, I mean, when did you decide to become a writer? Uh, early, like if you met me the day I arrived at college, I would have happily told you that I was going to be a writer. And that happened in high school or it happened? It happened in high school. I, I, I had a couple, I always wanted some sort of glory, you know, and the athletic road didn't work and then the guitar playing road didn't work and uh, here I am. <laughs> did you <laughs> Ranting read, into a microphone. Did you read something when you were an adolescent that just turned you around? Or was it... Uh, it was The Lord of the Rings for me. Was it? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was... That was I it. thought that I discovered The Hobbit. I found it in a paperback rack in a, the local pharmacy, actually. And I, no one had what ever recommended it. What a pharmacy in New Jersey. Yeah. Was, yeah, well, they, they used to have those... Uh, That's something. Those though. spinning... Racks, I racks, remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And... And I found it there. No one, no one recommended it. And I, I said, oh, this looks interesting. And, and this whole world opened up. And I became a sort of evangelist for Tolkien uh, in my high school. Isn't that great? Yeah. What about, can we talk about structure just a bit of your books? Because they seem to be sort of, the, the stories are always kind of loosely linked. Even though Nine Inches, they're, they're not, there's, there's a, a kind of... I mean, I could say that probably about, like, Cheever short stories, but there's a, a feeling that they're loosely linked or interconnected, and I wondered if the, if the sort of process affects the structure or the structure is part of the process, or, I mean, do you choose to... I mean, how does it come about? How do, how do you make it feel that they're, they're all part of one vein rather than... Or they are interconnected, and characters show up and... Various ones. Um, you know, 
when I went to graduate school in, at Syracuse in the 1980s, um, it was, you know, Tobias Wolf was one of the teachers, Raymond Carver was one of the teachers, and short story was, Absolutely, yeah. you know, was king really in, in that world. And, and I struggled to write standalone stories. And in fact, when, you know, Bad Haircut only started to make sense when I had written three stories with the same narrator. And, and now I think it would just be called a novel. Right, right. Well, that's interesting um, because some of them, you know, it's whether it's the. I, mean, I, I think your books could be novels or linked to short stories. I yeah. mean, it's and they're loosely interchangeable now. I think. No? Yeah, I and mean, and you know, Nine Inches wasn't written as a link collection, but it it feels a little bit like that only because I am who I am sure. as a writer. Um, for whatever reason, there are stories about kids in high school. In this book, there are stories about senior citizens trying to figure out how to live the last part of their lives, uh, and there are stories about, you know, parents and middle-aged people who are looking longingly at these teenagers who feel that there's nothing to love about their lives. So th those those are the characters, and all the stories take place in similar worlds, and schools figure really prominently right. in them. Uh, and so I think there does it does have that kind of concentrated link feel. Yeah. yeah. Um, what else did I say? Um, I wanted to talk to you about just adapting when you see, because you've had a number of your books turned into movies. How, how is that? I mean, one, how is it on the page and then the screen, the visual, are you disappointed often? Are you sometimes <laughs> like the adaptation better than the book itself? Is it, um, I, I've been lucky. I've had only good ap adaptations, and in, in some cases, great adaptations of, of my work. Um, Does it feel like your work, or it feels like something entirely different? I would like to take credit, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, I mean, what, what's so interesting to me is how an adaptation can be faithful in terms of, you know, what it presents and, and still feel, come back to you in this completely strange way. I mean, I, I'll treat it as a cover version by, uh, you know, uh, uh, another artist. And, right. and it seems like, a, you know, all of my books have a kind of tonal combination of comedy and drama. And I've noticed in the adaptations that the filmmakers seem to want to pick one. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. Election is sort Funny. of funnier than right. the book. And then uh, little, children. little Children is darker than, than the book. And The Leftovers, certainly, just, you know, Damon Lindelof brought his own very unique brand of storytelling to, to my novel. And, and uh, it's totally recognizable, and, and it's totally not. And, right. and I actually have become very interested in that, that feeling. And, and I suspect... And you're, you've written ten of the episodes, am I right? It was a 10-episode season. I, I co-wrote three of them, but I was in oh, the writer's room for, for, all, for all of that. Terrific. Um, but I didn't go in feeling like, okay, I'm going to protect my book. It was much more like, let's see what kind of a show we can make uh, out of this. What are you working on now? Uh, I've, I've, I'm, I'm playing around with something. <laughs> you are. Yeah, and this, this one is, I can't stay away from schools. For some reason, schools are the essential human institution for me, even more than family. And, and uh, it's about uh, a mother 
who has a, a divorced mom who has a son who goes to college, and she also then starts going to college uh, while he's there. So it's two different college stories. But at the same college? No. Oh, no, no, there are different yeah. colleges. Oh, okay. And what are you reading right now, out of curiosity? Uh, you know, uh, the, right at the moment I'm reading uh, Philip Roth's I Married a Communist. Oh, yeah. So I'm catching yeah. up. Terrific. And what I'm always curious also, like if because I, I did read that something about you reading The Scarlet Letter again. Oh, yeah. But I'm, I'm wondering if classics, I mean, would that be the classic that you would choose because you reread it as one of your favorite classics or when you read yeah. it again the reinterpretation or are there other classics that you find oh you know i, I really loved compelling? it i loved it so much i didn't love it in high school at all uh it seemed like an, a nightmare to me uh i couldn't get through it and and i it just was very happy to hate it for years and then i read it last year and and just thought it was extraordinary and um just wrote an introduction, actually, to the oh, uh, Penguin Classics, just trying to get at why why my mind changed about it. Uh, I also read Moby Dick last year, so I was I'm kind of revisiting. But Moby Dick, you didn't feel... I, I loved that, too. Yeah. yeah. That was a whole new book, too. I think if you haven't read something since high school or college... Oh, it changes so you, radically. Yeah, yeah you should it's just so read it interesting again. how your history, your own history, really changes how we sort of interpret the book. I mean, and I think... Books seem less intimidating when you're older. Yeah. You know, you, you don't get struck. You know, it's, I don't understand that word or this style is strange or uh, I'm not smart enough to read. All the, a lot of those feelings go away and you can kind of You think see. I don't care. I'm just enjoying it. Yeah, and <laughs> I think you see the writers as, as more... Human. Also right. human, yeah. right? Not these monumental figures. And in fact, for me, I, I live outside of Boston and... Uh, I do a lot of biking, and my bike ride goes past the Rose, Birthplace, Emerson's House, oh, the Old Nance, you know, where oh, Hawthorne yeah, lived. Yeah, and, yeah. and I think somehow, and, and the cemetery where they're all, where they're all buried. Oh, and, incredible. And, uh, I don't know, for some reason it's made them a little more human. Real. Yeah. yeah. Ah, well, thank you. I'm going to take some questions. Um, oh, come on, there must be questions. Yes. the experience of being in a writer's room uh you know having written your own stuff for so long now suddenly you're in a group environment how, how did that go yeah that, i think that's very unusual for a, a novelist to to be part of the writer's room uh and i really tried to go into it as like one person on on the team rather and and it was hard i think for the other writers at first there was a lot of deference and um damon lindelof the showrunner had to just say you know what the, the answer in this room for uh, you know a question of how do we proceed can never be well in the book that happened and and I was I was I tried to be okay with that now what that meant of course was that some days I just sat there and fumed uh, but there there was just no reason to be there if if I was going to play this sort of uh, just be an obstacle you know and, and I really wanted to. Um, Play. I, I wanted to see if we could reinvent the book in some way, and and I actually made it. Through, I made it through the season. We we only wanted to kill each other, you know, once a week. Like you mentioned, you write about latchkey kids who are left alone by their parents. Now I was reading. I've been doing some history reading. I know during World War Two, 
a lot of kids were often left alone. The t- papers also about delinquency and, 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 and pregnancies are wedlock. And how does today's uh, latchkey kids differ from the old latchkey kids of like World War II? That's the, uh, your historical perspective is, <laughs> is, is really intriguing because most of us can only see what's right in front of us. Um, all I will say is, is um, you know, those kids grew up really fast, and there was some uh, sense that everyone was supposed to be an adult by the time they left high school. And now, of course, you, you don't really have to be an adult ever. ever. Um, <laughs> and, and, and one of the things that's happened, of course, is, you know, my mother was just mentioning this to me, that, you know, that she was telling me a story about hearing... She claims it was the night that Orson Welles did the War of the Worlds thing, and that she was seven years old, and she was sent down to the corner to, to get something, and she's talking about how terrified she was. And, and then she was remembering that my kids were never allowed to go down to the corner. Um, and I, and I, I, there's just something fundamentally different about a world where um, kids aren't trusted, or the world isn't trusted enough for, for kids to go out and... and do things on their own. But if you read, uh, I mean, you know, Mad Men is a little bit about, you know, those, those people. You know, the World War II, the people who are just adults when, you know, now they would be kids. And, and so the whole definition of where adulthood starts and, and childhood ends is up for grabs. And it has been for a long time. I think it's always wrong to think, oh, there was some stable time where it all made sense and everybody agreed. It's just always shifting, and, and right now we're at a pretty extreme place. Um, and, and the culture does seem to be trying to work it out through art, which is always interesting to watch. Uh, in The Leftovers, I, you know, watching the show, it kind of seems like who gets taken and who was left behind. And the theology behind it seems pretty Calvinistic to me. But I was reading that your background was Catholic, which I was a little surprised at. So... Um, am I correct in that, or am I just um, okay? That boy, there's a lot, a lot in in all that. Um, I, I was, yeah, I was raised Catholic. I became very interested in um, evangelical theology in in the past ten years or so. And in the leftovers, I don't know that I would say that it's Calvinistic. I mean, it's quite possible that it's just purely random. Though there's a place where Calvinism and randomness kind of meet up uh, in, in that it's not a matter of who deserves what, it's who is chosen. Uh, so you could, you could say that, that the leftovers and is a kind of Calvinist theology. Like the girl that um, um, Kevin is fooling around, I mean, gets taken during it, and that seems like in the Catholic doctrine, she would definitely be a goner, but with the Calvinist, okay, if she was saved, she's still saved, even, you know, so... Uh, I think that and a few other things was where I... Well, I, I, think, I think it's... The question is whether the people who disappear are in some sense saved. It, it, that's not clear. I mean, I think, I think the theology of the leftovers is extremely murky, and this is what people are, are grappling with. It, it is painfully close to a sort of Christian myth, but, but it, it doesn't seem to match up perfectly, and it, it creates a lot of... Um, confusion and anxiety and space for religious improvisation. Okay. 
Hi. A number of writers seem to be reluctant to talk about a project before it's completed or halfway done, and you don't seem to feel that way. Um, could you just talk a little bit about that superstition and how, how, how you feel about it and how other writers feel about it? Um, well, I don't feel like I was... I, sp I spoke so vaguely about what I'm up to that uh, it didn't seem to me to reveal the thing that I'm really nervous about so, and the thing that, that someone might object to. So I, I felt like it was... Uh, it, I, I was actually obfuscating in a, in a profound way when, when I talked about the new project. It's really about something else entirely. Um, <laughs> but I, I have definitely had the experience that, that other people have had um, where you get really excited about something and you tell someone and then they say, oh, there's this movie out right now that's about the same thing. And, and you lose heart. Or they just say, oh, that doesn't sound that like you. Or that doesn't sound that... And, and I think you just learn to, to keep certain parts of it to yourself if you're, you're worried about them. And, uh, but, you know, and I, I don't show a, a lot of my work. I don't have, like, a group of writer friends that I send out my chapters to and, and get, get criticism from them. I don't want it at, at, at this point. I mean, there's... I think you're just, it's like some people won't say that, you know, they won't say, oh, I'm going out with so-and-so, or, you know, they, you want to wait till you know that it's for real. There's, there's a little bit of that. I think it's true also when you name a child. Notice that oh, people right. never, because people go, Andrew, they go, oh, yeah. that's a nice name. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, th I, think, I think that's it. You don't want somebody's lack of enthusiasm to dampen your own enthusiasm because that's all you have at a certain point is some enthusiasm and some faith and in fact this was an issue in the writer's room a lot because um, it's supposed to be an open and free-flowing conversation and and but the the job of the other writers is to sometimes raise objections or say oh I that I've seen that done a million times or whatever and, and it was hard to know when to play that role and when to just try and generate enthusiasm and it was a, a constant um, sort of Im improvisation of should I just be enthusiastic right now or should I be critical and, and you know what would be the most constructive and, and it, it's just hard to know but I think any writer who's had their enthusiasm dampened uh, learns to be quiet I agree anyway well oh I'll take one more and then we're going to wrap it up uh, one more So uh, a number of your books have been turned into movies. I wondered um, how conscious of you are you in the writing process of sort of a cinematic quality to your writing? I mean, so do you, do you think in terms of scenes and tableau, um, and then do you have another reflection on that in the writer's room? Because there, you know, you couldn't say... Well, in the book, it was different because there you're talking about characters and, you know, conflicts and stuff like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I, I, you know, it, it, having these two aspects of my writing life has actually um, allowed me to keep them separate. So I think if you look at my early work, it, it really does seem cinematic. Like if you look at a book like The Wishbones, it feels very much it's, it, it's, built, of, it's built of scenes. And, and it's, uh, there's a lot of dialogue. And I, 
and I think as I've gotten older and, and I've had work turned into screenplays and I've done screenwriting, my, my fiction seems to have become more language-based and, and there's, uh, so I just feel like I can use all the um, tools of, of fiction, a lot of um, movement in time, a lot of uh, internal monologue, things that, that wouldn't fit into a film. Uh, I've become much more aware of having those tools at my disposal as a, as a fiction writer and, and trying to use them. So I actually think my work's become less cinematic as I've had more of a life in the cinematic world. Thank you so much. Oh, We're going to wrap you. it up. Thank okay. you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And um, so, uh, and thank you to the Grand Central Partnership and to Bryant Park. And please walk down Library Way and look at all those wonderful plaques. And um, we have Books at Noon with Susan Minot next Wednesday. Thank you so much for all being here. Oh, and as I mentioned before, Tom will be signing in the library uh, at the bookstore, and they will be 10% off on hardbacks. All right. Thank you. Thank Thanks you very much. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org.